listeners. Welcome to another episode of Are You Really Living podcast. Today's guest is attorney Aaron Carger. Mr. Carger is the founding and managing partner of the law office of Aaron A. Carger. Mr. Carger attended Nova Southeastern University for his law degree. His practice area in law is personal injury, with an emphasis on negligent security cases, as well as personal injuries from intentional torts, such as sexual assault and battery. He handles other types of personal injury cases, such as automobile accidents, as well as slip and fall. Early in his career, he worked for the Miami-Dade State Attorney's Office, where he served as an assistant state attorney. He has handled many notable cases, several of which involving negligent security have been widely publicized in the media. Let's welcome our host, Mr. Enrio Longchamp, and our guest attorney, Aaron Carger. Hello, listeners. Thank you, and welcome to another episode of Are You Really Living? Today, we have with us attorney Aaron Carger. How are you doing, Mr. Carger? I'm doing well, Enrio. Thank you for having me. Let's just jump into it. What is personal injury law? Well, personal injury law really relates to a victim or an injured party's ability to get recourse, which means compensation for injuries they suffer due to the negligence of another. So you can really think of a personal injury originating from a tort, and that's sort of a fancy legal term. It's not a type of cake, uh, but a tort refers to a civil wrong. So when somebody is negligent and they cause harm to another, that's not criminal conduct, generally speaking. Correct. That is civil conduct. And so it relates, it rather results in a personal injury and the person for whom suffered a personal injury has recourse for the civil wrong of the negligent party. Okay. Now, what are the different types of personal injury cases? Sure. Well, they are varied. You have personal injury cases that relate to motor vehicle accidents. You have personal injury cases that arise out of slip and fall or trip and fall. They are often referred to as premises liability cases. You also have personal injury cases that arise out of criminal acts. Uh, And it's sort of interesting to consider how criminal act can give rise to tort damages or civil wrongs. And that is because, let's say, an owner of an apartment complex who was negligent in the oversight and the maintenance and keeping the apartment complex safe allowed criminal conduct to go on. And that resulted in injury by way of a theft, by way of a rape, by way of a battery or by way of a murder, that would be a personal injury case that could potentially be brought against the owner of the apartment complex. So negligent security, as it's called, is yet another type of personal injury case that can be brought. But others in brief are trucking accidents, medical malpractice matters, product liability matters, Mm -hmm. legal malpractice matters, whereby an attorney is negligent in the representation of his or her client. That is actionable as a type of tort and really a type of injury in that the injured party, their legal rights have been harmed. So all of those types of claims fall under the umbrella of personal injury matters. Okay, let me give you a quick example and you let me know if I have a case or not. Um, I go to see X, X lives at Y apartment, and 
a fight ensued and I'm injured, can I sue that apartment complex? Well, facts and circumstances, because if it was a one-off fight, if it was an isolated incident, if it was a standalone type of altercation, then generally speaking, no. You would not have any real recourse other than calling law enforcement to open a criminal case against the offender or against whoever committed the battery criminally. Okay. A personal injury case would be would consider far more analysis. You'd have to look back in time and assess whether incidents like this were frequent, whether the owner of the complex was present or representatives of the owner were present such that they were aware or had knowledge of these type of fights. And if there weren't exactly fights, were there other types of potential criminal matters? And one way to assess this is by requesting a 9-11 dispatch to see exactly the types of calls that law enforcement were dispatched for. So let's say you had shootings or sexual assaults or uh, theft all of that could be considered notice or knowledge that the owner of the complex should have had to better keep safe the apartment community. Okay. So the long-winded answer to your question is, yes, potentially, if all of that or some of that existed as a victim of battery by way of a fight, uh, that injured party could potentially, in your hypothetical, have a claim against the apartment complex. Got it. Now, another hypothetical. I have a party at my home. I serve alcohol and someone at that party, you know, consumes alcohol and ended up being behind the wheel and injures someone. Can that person, that injured party, come after me, the person that hosted the party? Well, again, that turns on facts and circumstances. If it could be shown that you served that intoxicated person knowingly that they were intoxicated, and did so to the point where you did well beyond that in which they uh, were even, I would say, borderline intoxicated, where it was sort of over the top and it was plain and obvious through behavior, through indicia of intoxication, through wit eyewitness testimony, uh, and perhaps through other type of evidentiary uh, showings that you knowingly serve them, mm -hmm. uh, then it could be actionable, yes, against you um, or potentially your property or others, depending on whether there was a vendor at your home that was serving the alcohol, for instance, some sort of uh, event planner or party contractor. Yes, the answer is yes. Parties could potentially be held civilly accountable for it. Okay. Right. So in other words, we just have to be extremely careful when we throw up parties um, to the listeners right now. And what are the benefits of hiring a personal injury lawyer? Well, it's, I would say for someone without any experience in personal injury uh, or for a non-lawyer to go about it on their own, that is to assess liability, to assess damages, and to generally have experience with insurance carriers who can be really cutthroat uh, in that, remember, what an insurance carrier does, generally speaking, is collect premiums over the course of the life of a policy. But when it comes time to pay settlements, uh, insurance carriers, the gauntlet comes down, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And uh, it a whole new type of microscopic 
system is introduced to look at both the allegedly injured person mm -hmm. as well as the alleged liability that surrounds their injury. So for someone without experience, a non-lawyer uh, without experience to go about negotiating with an insurance carrier, knowing what to reveal, knowing what not to reveal, um, I think would be incredibly precarious. So really to maximize value, I think an injured party should absolutely hire a licensed um, attorney with, frankly, significant experience in personal injury and significant experience in understanding how an insurance carrier evaluates injury and how they evaluate liability and to know whether, let's say, a settlement offer is fair or not and whether a claim needs to be put into suit in order to apply pressure. And if pressure is still not felt, let's say, during the court process, that is to say the litigation process, mm -hmm. Uh, than potentially to try the case before a jury. Okay. Now, how long does it usually take to resolve a personal injury case? Now, I'm going to give you two scenarios. One, when it comes to auto accident, and the other one, which which is um, on premise liability. How long does it typically take? Well, I hate to say it depends because that can be an irritating response, but it very much depends. In auto accidents, oftentimes liability is clear. Uh, there are times when it's crystal clear, but many times it's reasonably clear. And when it's reasonably clear, insurance carriers tend to step up and get serious about settlement. Uh, and that is to say, get serious about settlement before the claim is put into suit. So an insurance carrier will look at a claim, look at injuries, look at liability, and oftentimes, this requires negotiation going back and forth, but will oftentimes pay at least some semblance of fair compensation to the injured party. If that's the case, then you're really looking at the life of the claim starting from the date of the accident that caused the injury up and through the time in which the injured party treats. Mm -hmm. So depending on the extent and nature of the injury, that could be anywhere from a few months to a year. But the point is, if that injured person's claim is resolved by the carrier without filing suit, then you could think about it from starting anywhere from three months, six months, up and through a year time for a motor, motor vehicle accident. Now, a premises liability claim, such as a slip and fall or trip and fall, oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes, times takes much longer to resolve. And that is because um, much of the time, unlike a motor vehicle accident, the insurance carrier may feel that liability is not reasonably clear. They may dispute liability. Uh, and that is because there are a number of factors that need to be essentially proven up in order to demonstrate liability in a premises liability claim, such as a slip and fall or trip and fall. So the punchline is that many times a premises liability claim will need to be filed, mm -hmm. will need to be put into suit in order that fair compensation is offered. And fair compensation may be offered during the litigation while the claim is in litigation in court, or there might not ever be fair compensation offered, at least in the eyes of the injured party. And if that's the case, then a decision may very well be made to try the case, which is to uh, ask the jury to make the decision on fair compensation. So under those circumstances, a premises liability claim um, oftentimes takes longer to resolve or not resolve. I mean, in a jury trial, the jury could find no liability and the 
injured party could be zipped. That's not to say motor vehicle accidents also at times take longer than usual. It all depends on whether liability is disputed or, frankly, damages, that is, the extent to which someone is injured, whether those allegations, allegations of injury, are disputed. Okay. Now, we, we did not talk about this as of yet, but dog bite. If I'm walking around I'm down the street and then a dog happened to jump on me and uh, bite me. Well, interesting. Is that a case? It can be a case. Under Florida law, a, uh, a dog bite, uh, well, let me back up for a moment. Under Florida law, a dog bite is, a dog bite claim is governed by what is referred to as strict liability. Okay. Which is there is no notice burden because it's like a one strike, a, a one and done, if you will, type of concept. So under Florida law, an owner, the premise is that an owner is at all times responsible for controlling their dog and therefore the behavior of their dog. Mm -hmm. So a dog bite, the burden of proof is that of strict liability, meaning that that owner is strictly liable uh, for that dog bite. Now, there are exceptions, and that is, could the person for whom was bit, uh, were they comparatively negligent? That is not exactly a, an exception, but it's a defense of sorts. Did they instigate the dog? Also, if we're talking about a fact pattern in which somebody is just walking down the street, Perhaps it's just a loose dog. Perhaps it's a stray dog. Perhaps it uh, is a dog that, uh, you know, escaped from a facility of sorts. It all depends. Mm -hmm. uh, liability would be sort of a moving target under those facts. But in Florida, a dog bite claim is brought under strict liability. And how does the process of filing a personal injury claim work? And what should an individual expect during each stage? Well, it depends on the type of claim. If it's a motor vehicle accident, insurance is exchanged oftentimes at the scene. And, uh, you know, assuming that the injured party retains a lawyer, that lawyer sends a letter out to the at-fault driver's insurance carrier requesting the at-fault or allegedly at-fault driver's insurance policy. The insurance policy is turned over. Mm -hmm. And that injured party's lawyer makes a determination on whether there's coverage and makes a determination on uh, whether or the extent to their client's injuries based on initial appointments that their client, the injured party, has attended either by way of chiropractor or by way of radiologist or by way of orthopedist. Uh, and if there is no coverage, then oftentimes, unfortunately, the injured party's lawyer isn't able to help the injured party because there may very well not be coverage on the other side of the accident, which is to say that the at-fault party, the at-fault driver may very well not have been covered by insurance at the time of the accident, which is a really ugly reality. Uh, so in any event... So, Mr. Carter, how does the statute of limitations affect personal injury claims? Sure. So, and this is a little bit of a thorny question in of itself, because up until very recently, uh, the statute of limitations, generally speaking on personal injury cases, 
other than the statute of limitations on personal injury cases has changed recently. And that is that on, it was around the end of March, uh, by way of Governor DeSantis signing a bill into law. But up until then, for a significant period of time, the statute of limitations on personal injury cases, generally speaking, other than medical malpractice cases, was four years. So an injured party had four years in which to file suit on the event, on the accident event that caused their injury. However, now uh, when we talk about motor vehicle accidents, premise liability claims, personal injury actions of that nature, it is now two years. So an injured party now has two years to file, to put that claim in suit, to file that action for the injury that arose out of the accident event. Uh, so as it stands, the statute of limitations has changed drastically and very much significantly changes a personal injury case, whereas up until very recently, an injured party had four years. So cutting off two of those years uh, drastically impacts the timeline in which a plaintiff has to take legal action, a plaintiff or an injured party must take legal action. Now, why did the governor of the center did such a move and what can be done? Well, I think that uh, with the appropriate court fine, with the appropriate constitutional, what is the best way to describe it? I would say there are more likely than not, and this is not my practice area, constitutional challenges that could at least put potentially the new law into question. But to your question as to why he did what he did, at least the basis for which he gave the people of Florida was that Florida is home to a toxic litigation environment and lawsuit abuse. I think those were two terms of art that he used and that this law helps drastically reduce that type of abuse in which certain litigants certain parties perpetuate onto the court circuits throughout Florida. So that was a reason that he gave. And he also further justified that by claiming that this also helps better protect small businesses who are at times the targets of personal injury actions that sometimes end up destroying the small business. That's, uh, that's what he said. Okay. So now, um, uh, in terms of sexual assault, prior to jumping into sexual assault, if two adults have a consensual sex and one had a trans uh, tr sexually transmitted disease and the other ha uh, happens to contract that disease, can that other person sue the person that gave them that uh, sexually transmitted disease? Well, this also depends on the notion of notice, the concept of notice, and that is if a person has knowledge uh, of their sexually transmitted disease and engages in sexual activity knowingly of their sexually transmitted disease, which results in the transmission of that sexually transmitted disease onto their partner, then uh, the answer is yes. The person who knowingly engaged, uh, knowingly that is, of their sexual sexual transmitted disease and engaged with somebody um, can be liable for int intentional or negligent uh, transmission of that sexually transmitted disease. So that was a bit of a long-winded response, but in short, you can think of it in a way that it turns on knowledge. So 
if somebody has no knowledge, there is one irony in the law, and that is conceivably someone without knowledge who has a lot of sexual partners and who is very promiscuous. It could conceivably be a defense that even though they were promiscuous, they never did ultimately have knowledge. Let's say they were never tested, but they transmitted a sexually transmitted disease to a partner. And that partner pointed to all of the partners that mm -hmm. the person with the STD had. One defense could be, yeah, I did have all those partners, but I never actually knew that I had an STD. So it hinges on knowledge. Okay. Now, sexual assault cases can be very emotional and challenging for survivors. Um, how do you approach these cases? Well, I think you have to understand that victims grieve and process trauma differently. I'm learning all the time. I'm learning about a victim, which happens to also be a client, but not only am I learning about their processing of grief and trauma, uh, I'm learning about it through uh, my own reading on disclosure and perhaps at least medicinally or perhaps at least medically how certain victims internalize and externalize trauma. So in approaching a victim of sexual assault, um, I think one at least bright line rule for me is I mostly listen and uh, really stand back to allow the victim for whom is my client to engage me, to talk to me, to approach me, to schedule time with me. And it's really at their discretion. So I am a tool or a potential tool for them to pursue justice. Uh, but uh, I think at least an approach that has been effective in my practice is to really just be a resource for assisting with healing and assisting with representation. Um, and that is, at least in my experience, best done passively through interaction with clients. Can a victim, can, can a victim can stay truly anonymous? In other words, they come forward and they don't want to be, they don't want their story to be publicized, even though it's going through the court system. So can they stay truly anonymous throughout the entire course of the case? The answer is yes. Generally speaking, if the lawsuit gets filed under the Jane Doe pseudonym, you know, there are safeguards in place to protect the identity of that victim. Uh, now, that's not to say, you know, there have historically been leaks, or I'm sure there are ways in which a leak could occur. And that is, if it was a high profile case, perhaps there could be uh, research or intel done about the different players or about different evidentiary details in the case and the victim's name could be gleaned that way. Uh, so so really in that vein, sort of anything's possible, I suppose. But uh, at least in the court systems in which I work, which is South Florida Circuit Courts, Miami-Dade, Broward, Palm Beach, uh, in my experience, there are very much adequate safeguards to protect the identity of the victim. So yes. Now, you primarily work uh, Dade County and also Broward County. Is there a difference the way that African Americans are treated than others when it comes to the court system? I think that I think that historically there have been historically there have been bars to African Americans undoubtedly 
achieving equal justice under the law. And so I think that in this day and age, I think that there still is, due to socioeconomic reasons, why there still today remains unequal access to justice, um, which is to say that as a direct result of a person's socioeconomic lot in their life, so to speak, uh, there is a bar to understanding who and what to reach out to, and generally speaking, whether their voice is going to be heard. So that in of itself can be a bar to justice if someone has grown up in an environment in which their voice has really never been heard because they are lower socioeconomic or they've been impoverished or uh, they've grown up in an environment or climate of violence and they've never really had any experience outside of that environment um, and they are victimized, for example, uh, they don't know anything other than being victimized. And so, and most certainly there are racial themes there in addition to that. So I think that you know, by way of historical, uh, by way of a historical reality, let's say for African Americans, th there are a number of whom that I've worked with as clients who didn't understand that their voice could be heard and didn't understand how that could even really be a possibility based on their experience up until then, growing up in the environment in which they did. Okay. So uh, that's in large part why I uh, find my work very rewarding is because I've now helped a number of clients who I, from the outset, right from the jump, I could see that they perhaps they didn't think they were worth being heard, or they just couldn't possibly conceive that they would be heard for something horrific that has happened to them. And in part, was that, was that a result of racial circumstance? I would say yes. Okay. What are what advice would you give someone that's listening right now who had experienced sexual assault and is considering taking legal actions? I think that based on some of my reading, I think that statistically, you know, different publications and different research yields different statistics and facts, but in my reading in part has indicated that the vast majority of adults who have been sexually abused as minors will never reveal it, will never disclose it. So to those that are suffering in shame and silence, my best advice without living in their shoes, because I don't, I don't live their lives, would be to seriously consider coming forward, um, as excruciating as that may be, uh, but that there are resources, both therapeutic and legal resources, that could potentially assist them, you know, in, in, in a significant way. Uh, so my best advice to them would be when they're ready uh, to take that step and to seek help, both, both uh, psychological and legal, potentially, if there is legal help available to them, but to find their voice. Now, this is the fun part of the podcast. It's, the podcast is called Are You Really Living? So you're from Minnesota. You're down here in Florida, so you're truly living your best life. With that being said, how did you end up down here? So I grew up in a really small rural town up near Canada, and um, a lot of the people I grew up with, friends and family members, 
loved the fall. They really embraced the leaves falling from the trees mm -hmm. and the colors changing. And I always felt like I was an outcast because when I saw all of that, I just saw bleak gray knowing what was coming next, mm -hmm. which was a desolate, bone-chilling, God-forsaken winter. Temperatures of upwards of like 60 and 70 below zero, right? So I never got into fall and the colors changing and things dying and the beauty in it all. All I wanted was to live on the coast all my life. I said, I want to be surrounded by warmth. I want to be surrounded by colors. And I had that bug as far back as I can remember. So in my sophomore year of college, I participated in a program where I was able to study at another school domestically. And that school for me was FIU. So I was attending Minnesota State University and the program I participated in allowed me to study at FIU for my sophomore year. And I really liked FIU and I really liked Miami and South Florida. And I had to go back to my home school in Minnesota and I did and I graduated. But instead of sticking around, working in Minneapolis and living in Minnesota, I pulled the trigger and moved back down to Miami uh, because of, you know, the reasons I just described about living in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the simple answer. But, you know, there are other explanations as well which is I really appreciated the diversity in South Florida, particularly that of Miami. You know, I grew up in a very rural environment, but with frankly, very, 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 very little diversity. So I appreciated, uh, you know, the various ethnicities and backgrounds that surrounded me when I was in Miami for that year. Okay. So those are the reasons why I ended up ultimately in South Florida and in Miami. And I'm assuming you enjoy, you enjoying the food down here as well. Yes, very much. I eat uh, different types of food uh, every single week. I sort of stick to the same types, but when I say different types of food, I mean food from you know different ethnic foods. Focus and focus on Caribbean though, because that's you know geographically where we are, but. I'm a big fan of uh, Haitian and Jamaican food, and even um, even some uh, even some uh, some Latin Caribbean food. Uh, but there's no shortage of really good spices and flavors in Miami. That's for sure. Well, with that being said, uh, if anybody would like to contact you and would like to retain you, how can they find you? Sure. So I can be found at. Uh, www.aak-law.com. Uh, but my really easy, most best email address to contact me is at askaaron at aak-law.com. Askaaron at aak-law.com is the best and fastest way to get through. And your office line, you have an office line you want to provide or you sure. just leave it at that? 305 five seven 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 two better than james bond licensed to sue and with that being said thank you very much for stopping by are you really living and uh, we'll be in touch and continue doing the wonderful work you're doing in the community thank you very much sir pleasure working with you all right have a good one thank you for listening to the are you really living podcast 
We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to us on social media. We would love to hear from you. Keep listening, keep learning, and keep growing. And most importantly, keep living your best life. Please like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.